remain standing, let us uh, turn in tonight's sermon text uh, to your Bibles. Last book once again, the book of Revelation. Uh, We have made our way to chapter 2 this evening as we want to look at what is the first of Christ's seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And so we'll look at the letter to the church in Ephesus this evening, which is just verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. So let me uh, read that text for us and then pray that God would help us hear what we must uh, from this letter, and then we'll begin. So listen now, because Christ is indeed speaking to us. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Our Father, we do ask that you would help us. As Christ examines even our church life, from your holy word that you would allow us to respond with meekness even as he commands that we would remember that we would repent and that we would return to him who is our great love and we pray it all in Jesus name amen you may be seated one of the better known early church fathers but also martyrs of the faith was a man named Ignatius of Antioch And we don't know exactly when his martyrdom happened, but we'll, for the sake of this evening, say it happened around A.D. 110. So, 15, 20 years maybe or so after the book of Revelation was written, ten Roman soldiers arrested him for his faith in Jesus Christ, and they marched him to Rome. And along the way, Ignatius pulled out his pen and he wrote seven letters to seven church leaders, or seven churches. And the third letter that he wrote was to what was the most prominent church in all of Asia Minor at the time. It was, a, it was a church that Ignatius said was, quote, famous forever for their zeal for the truth, their fighting spirit against error. He even goes on to say in that letter, which is not terribly long, he says that you are renowned for when your meetings occur, the devil's forces fall in fear. Such was in and around 110, or A.D. 110, the church at Ephesus. But if you know anything about the church at Ephesus' story, it wasn't too terribly long later that they're no longer famous forever for their zeal for truth. They're famous forever for something totally different, something altogether much more sad, having forgotten their first love. And so what we see when we come to these letters to the churches is Jesus Christ investigating His people. 
Now imagine if a church leader was like Ignatius to come along today and write a letter to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. What do you think he would include on those pages? What words of encouragement might he give? Words of commendation? Perhaps even words of critique might he give to you? And so we want to approach all of these letters with a noticeable degree of humility because Christ means for His Spirit to apply them to us in particular ways that we might be warned away from errors of churches past, that we might be encouraged in spiritual fruits that belong to churches throughout the ages. Surely, for all of us, when we come to every one of these letters, there's going to be a place of comfort. There's going to be a place of conviction. So Christ's word to Ephesus is the simple theme of these seven verses. You'll notice it in three parts. First, we want to notice Jesus rejoice. See, what are those reasons for Jesus' joy in the passage? Two, we want to hear Jesus' rebuke. And thirdly, we want to see Jesus' reward. Jesus' reward. So notice again verse 1 as we notice Jesus rejoice. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So kids, I need you to think back, if you were with us last week, to what we saw last week in chapter 1. John was worshiping God on a Sunday, when all of a sudden he heard this loud voice, he said, like a trumpet, burst forth from behind him. And then John turned around, and what did he see? He said, I saw one like the Son of Man standing among the seven lampstands. And this was a picture of the risen, exalted Jesus Christ. In all His splendor, in all His beauty, in all His majesty. And it wasn't just this arresting sight, it was a genuinely terrifying sight. Remember, John falls down as though dead at this sight of the Savior. But kids, what did the seven lampstands represent? Do you remember? The seven churches in modern day Turkey. And so the first one that gets Christ's attention is the most prominent one, the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the dominant city in Asia Minor at the time. It's much like if you think about New York. So New York City isn't the capital, but it's the most influential city in that whole state by far. The same thing was happening in this Roman province as well. Pergamum was the capital, but Ephesus was the dominant city. Politically, it was the place of supreme influence and power. Commercially, it was the place of the greatest profit because it was this port city that brought in all of this trade that worked its way into the rest of the Roman Empire there in modern-day Turkey. But also spiritually, it was the place that had the temple to the goddess Artemis, and this temple itself was one of the ancient architectural modern uh, ancient architectural marvels and it was really the actual center of the imperial cult of Rome. If you were in Asia Minor and you wanted to go to a place of significance, you went to Ephesus. And you'll see like again at verse 1, Christ is telling John to write to the angel of the Ephesian church. Now, you might think that this angel is a heavenly being that represents some type of watch and guard over local churches, which could be true. That's actually most scholarship today would say that. Uh, I belong to an older school of thought that takes this angel to be not a heavenly messenger, but a human messenger. Because students, you might know actually the Greek word is is simply messenger. Same word for angels, the same word for messenger, and it's used throughout the Bible a number of times for human messengers, for human angels. So for example, in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, Luke reports Jesus sent out the apostles 
to prepare the way ahead of him. But the text actually says he sent out his angels to prepare the way ahead of him. And so I think what it's talking about here when it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? We might say in more modern parlance today, to the pastor, to the minister of the church at Ephesus, right? Because what are God's ministers but God's mouthpieces? And what are God's messengers but God's mouthpieces? And what are God's angels but God's mouthpieces? And whether or not that's true, we can't be exactly sure, even though I'm pretty confident in that interpretation. But it doesn't, even if it's a wrong interpretation, change what comes now. Notice what Jesus rejoices in in verses 2 through 3. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patience, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So two simple things that brings Jesus joy here at Ephesus. One is their perseverance. Do you see that? In the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution, they're standing firm. They're not wavering. They're not growing weary. No, no scheme of Satan can shake them. No design of the devil can make their faith waver. He's proud. He's joyful. He's rejoicing, Jesus is, in this local church's perseverance in the midst of incredible opposition. Secondly, maybe more surprisingly, he rejoices in their intolerance. You see that? He, he says that you can't bear with those who are evil, that you don't countenance false teaching. And so, kids, what you want to recognize, even though society, of course, today would say otherwise, that sometimes being intolerant is a holy thing, especially when it comes to being intolerant of error that leads churches astray. We'll think about that more when we get to verse 6 in a minute. This is what gives Jesus joy, a church that perseveres, a church that stands firm in the truth, fights courageously against error. Notice Jesus rejoicing now in verse 4. Hear Jesus' rebuke. You know, some of you may have been in an annual review of sorts. And maybe as when you were a student, your teacher wants to tell you how the last semester has gone or how that school year went, or maybe it was your boss saying, here's how the previous year's work has gone. Even just recently, I sat down with the coach of my son's soccer team as he gave my son a, a two-month evaluation of his first two months with uh, this team. And if you're anything like me, if you've been in those situations, they tend to start, don't they? with encouragements, with strengths, with praises. And you, you take it all in, don't you, with a degree of level-headedness because you know something is coming, right? <laughs> a three-letter word, but. But this is what you're doing wrong. But this is where you must improve. That certainly is the experience of the Ephesians, isn't it? Look at verse 4. But I have this against you. You know, I wonder if you're the kind of person that takes criticism well. Many people don't, because it's hard, isn't it? How much harder might it be when the Lord Jesus Christ himself would say, I have this against you? Well, what is it? Notice verse 4 as it continues, that you have abandoned the love you have at first. Now, students, you need to recognize something about the church at Ephesus to understand the degree to which it ought to be stunning to us. At this point, at the end of the first century, they have already abandoned the love they had at first. So this church was planted by the Apostle Paul. He ministered there for three years, teaching and preaching. The celebrity preacher named Apollos, he taught the gospel there. Master disciples, Priscilla and Aquila, they trained others there. When Paul wanted to leave his man in charge, he put 
Timothy, his young protege there in Ephesus to shepherd the work. And even church tradition says that none other than the beloved, uh, beloved disciple, the apostle John himself, who is writing this book of Revelation, he eventually oversaw the church there at Ephesus. And you see how godly leadership is no guarantee of future devotion. You may have it right for a while, but it can be gone in the blink of an eye. Because notice what Jesus is saying here. It's not as though you are drifting away from your first love. You're wandering away from your first love. You're venturing away from your first love. What does he say? You have already abandoned it. That flame of fire, this first love, it's already been extinguished. And so what is this love that Jesus speaks about here? I think it's just simply love for Christ. He doesn't exactly say, does he? But this is the supreme love that guides all other loves in Scripture. This is the dominant love that belongs to his church. This is the dominant love that belongs to his people. Love for Christ. And he says, you have forgotten it. You have abandoned it. And you know, all my years of ministry, I see this all the time, maybe most acutely in marriage counseling. Because every marriage is different. But there are common problems that you see in all marriages. And so when you know a couple will come in for marriage counseling, they begin to unveil the problems that they're having, the tension that marks their home, uh, the conflict that they just can't seem to work their way through. Uh, sooner or later, it often seems, not always, but more often than not, that at the root of that disagreement is they've forgotten their first love. Gone are the days of their wedding when that love was noticeable. Gone are the time when they return from their honeymoon, when everyone sees a glow of love on their faces. Or that love that they experienced when they bought their first house for the first time. That love that marked them in the hospital room when they held their first baby for the first time. There's lots of things going on in the home, but there's no love anymore in the home. And so what Jesus is saying is true here at the church at Ephesus. There's lots of things you guys are doing. There's lots of ways in which you guys are serving. There's valiant ways in which you guys are fighting. But you've forgotten me. And to make sure that they can remedy this situation, notice the sequence that follows Christ's divine remedy. First of all, they must remember. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Sometimes, isn't it true that the only way forward is to first look back? Think back to the time when you were first converted. And you just woke up in the middle of the night thinking about Christ's love for you. Or think back to those days, maybe perhaps for some of you it was in college, when study of divine truth, reading God's word was your, was your daily feast. Or that time when nothing excited you more than gathering with God's people on the, Lord day, on the Lord's day. Remember from where you have fallen, Jesus says. Number two, they must repent. You see verse 5 continues, repent and do the works you did at first. We don't know what that works exactly include, or those works include. Surely they were good works that they were doing way back when. But they must repent. And so kids, repentance just means turning. It's always turning from sin to the Savior. Here they must turn from their forgetting of Jesus Christ and return to those great works for Jesus Christ that they had performed in years past. And to underscore the severity of this warning, they must not just remember, they must not just repent, they must also recognize. Look at the end of verse 5. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, students, this doesn't mean that Jesus is saying you're going to lose your salvation, Ephesians. What he is saying is that the light of Christ will no longer shine from this congregation. I'm going to take the lampstand away. 
In other words, we would say, no longer are they going to be useful for the sake of my kingdom. And you wonder, don't you, when you, when you read texts like this, how many churches today might be serving faithfully, casting brilliant vision, erecting fruitful programs, all the while unaware that Christ's lampstand is no longer in their midst because they've forgotten, they've abandoned their first love. And it's almost as though Jesus wants to not crush their spirit with such a warning. So he encourages them again. He sweetens, if you will, the severity. Look at verse 6. Yet this you do have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we don't know anything about the Nicolaitans. They show up later on in chapter 2, as best we can tell, given some early primary sources. They, they seem to be something of a, a Christian sect that was teaching. You could follow Jesus, but still engage in the common sins of the Ephesian society. It certainly was false teaching, whatever it was. I think the central point that I want you to feel tonight is the reality in verse 6 that Jesus hates it. You need to have a doctrine of Christ, a view of Christ that recognizes He burns with anger against teaching that claims His name but is altogether false and only leads people to hell. This is the Christ of Revelation. I hate this teaching and it's good that you hate it too. This is His rebuke. Notice that he rejoices. And then verse 7 at the very end, he wants to see Jesus' reward. Uh, kids, think with me about coins in our country. What's on coins? So, whose face is on a penny? Abraham Lincoln. And I might not get these right. So, if you look at me like, what's he talking about? You can shout out, uh, Pastor, that's not the right face on that coin. What's on a nickel? Thomas Jefferson. What's on a quarter? George Washington. If you were to be in the city of Ephesus at this time, you would likely come across a coin that had on its face a tree. That was the symbol of nature worship in Ephesus. And it's as though in this Ephesian society, Jesus here at the very end says, well, you've often seen that tree. Now I want to tell you the tree that is truly important. So important that he underscores it. Notice at the beginning of verse 7, this call to make sure you pay attention. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's why you're on good ground whenever you come to these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, to recognize while the letter was written to a first century context, a particular local church, they still apply to us. Because anyone who hears this letter, Jesus says, listen carefully. And notice the reward, verse 7 at the end, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This tree is going to show up later on, isn't it, in Revelation chapter 22, where it lies at the center of God's eternal city. This tree that's symbolic of the eternal life that's lived in God's paradise. And eating of that tree belongs to, notice, the one who conquers, which is a huge theme in Revelation, which it simply means to the one of persevering faith that conquers, that continues. And I wonder if you will eat of this tree one day. I hope you will, for it's Jesus' reward given to those who persevere in the faith. This is Christ's word to Ephesus and also to us. Earlier in the spring, it was a Monday morning, I was teaching down at the seminary uh, like I tend to do, and I walked into the class and 
The students were there gathered with some degree of excitement, but mostly a sleepy demeanor written across their faces, as they tend to do. And right before the class began, the executive director of the campus, he walked in and said, hey, is it okay if I sit in on your class today? Like he never does. And I thought to myself, well, I must get it right today because he is investigating and examining what's going on here. And as we begin to close, I want to underscore the reality that we do see in all these letters, but certainly here at the outset of Christ's letters to the seven churches, two simple things to drive that point home. Number one, the Savior is watching. The Savior is watching. It's meant to tell us that He's intimately acquainted. He's carefully interested in what's going on in His church. He sees everything. Do you ever wonder what might change in local churches, but especially what might change in our church if we truly understood that Christ was always watching, that nothing escaped His eye, that He knows the strengths, He knows the weaknesses, that our divisions, that our difficulties, that our sins, that our strivings don't escape His watch. The Savior is watching. Number two, the Savior is warning. I suppose you might understand some of you, perhaps many of you, why sarcastically this letter has actually been called oftentimes throughout recent decades the letter to the Reformed Church. The fatal flaw of Ephesus was their lack of love. They had great activity for Jesus Christ. No intimacy with Jesus Christ. They were serving faithfully. They were fighting valiantly. They were knowing truthfully. And yet they were no longer loving fervently. And so Christ warns them, return, repent to the love you had at first. It's a love even the Ephesians had heard from Paul's letter in the church at Ephesus. The end of that book says, to those who love Christ with love incorruptible. That was to mark the Ephesian church life. When Paul puts his protege pastor there, Timothy, he says, Timothy, here's the purpose of the church. Here's the purpose that within a few decades, Ephesus has already forgot. The aim of our charge, verse 5 of 1 Timothy 1 says, the aim of our charge is, do you know what the word is? Love. The aim of our charge is love. And so lest we might be like in Ephesus, or things could be right today, but in a few decades they could be altogether abandoned and forgotten. We want to repent. We want to remember. We want to recognize what Christ says to us. That always, even like we sang this morning in our service, Ever on our lips would be that great theme of redeeming love. Redeeming love has been my theme. And what shall be till I die. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would indeed increase our love. Oh, Father, we recognize that in maybe ways that your Spirit's opening our eyes to this evening that we have been drifting, been wandering. Oh Lord, we pray that you would protect us from never abandoning our first love. May that which unites us, that which guides us, that which empowers us, that which excites us most always be love for you. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.